0: Well, this morning, I wish to um, say Happy Mother's Day as well. Sometimes on Mother's Day, we ask mothers to stand, but I would like a group, as the ushers are passing the plates, a different group to stand today, and I'm one of them standing right now. How many of you would be willing to stand and say that it was your mother who had a major role in your spiritual development? How many of you would stand and say that? Look at us. Look, look. I'm, I'm standing. My mother, <laughs> I would say, has had the greatest role in my spiritual development. It's my mother. Look at this. Oh, we have to stand because we don't get clapped. We're the ones who get to clap for our mothers. <laughs> wow. We're the fortunate ones. And we wish we all could be standing. It would be not some, you can be seated now, but what a, what a privilege to have had had a, had a mother like I have had that, that gave so much, still does. She's uh, 89 now, but she, she said now she can't do a lot. She says, my role now is to pray. I'm going to pray for all my children. That's what my mother does. And I thought, whoa, what would I do without my mother, <laughs> my mother's prayers, but thank you. Thank you all your mothers your your role maybe behind the scenes is one of the greatest roles that any human being can ever play because our relationship with God is the most important thing there is of all. as you see on the screens, we have those number or those words forty days up there and this is the last of the forty days what we've been doing since um, Resurrection Sunday some weeks ago is we've been focusing on what Jesus did in the last 40 days of his life on earth. And today we come to the final day. This is the day, 40 days after the resurrection in which Jesus ascended to heaven. So today we're going to look at the final things he said and what he did at the very end of his last appearance here on this earth. But first, let's turn to World War II. You know, of course, that, that face, and I'm sure many of you who, who were actually involved alive at World War II time, you know this famous statement. As Douglas MacArthur and the soldiers had to leave the Philippines in 1942, he made this statement, I came out of Bataan, and I shall return. And sure enough, a couple years later, he did at the end of the war. <laughs> For those of you, uh, the Arnold, Arnold, the Terminator, After being denied entrance into a police station, he said, as he drives his car through the front door, I'll be back. And all the Terminator movies have this line in them somewhere. I'll be back. You know that one. I'm from Wisconsin. And for those of you who are Bronco fans, uh, sorry for you, but (laughs) this is a Packer. Or he was. And he did one of the worst things possible. He went and he played for the Minnesota Vikings of all horrible things to do. And then he said, guys, I'm coming back again. And thankfully he didn't. (laughs) You Star Wars fans, oh, we heard you. The return of the Jedi. Again, someone who's been here says, we will come back. But the most famous of all of them, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ. Among his last words are, I'll be back. He said these words some 2,000 years ago before he ascended to heaven. Today, we're going to look at the final things he did and said before he left our world. So he gives his final instructions. And I would assume that any of you, if you knew that this were your last days or your last words, they'd be very, very important. And so they were with Jesus as well. So, in your Bibles today, if you would look at Acts chapter 1, that's where we're going to find the last words of Jesus. And it's Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Now, the first thing Jesus is going to do is he's going to emphasize the most important thing in his entire life and ministry here on earth. And this is how it begins he's going to stress the centrality of the good news, of the gospel. In my former book, the my is Luke, Dr. Luke. His former book was the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. As you know, Dr. Luke wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, he's actually in the book. He's going to write at a certain portion in the book of Acts. He's going to start using the word we. Because he's an eyewitness. He is not an eyewitness of the life of Jesus. He's a historian. But during the life of the Apostle Paul, he not only is an eyewitness, he's Paul's personal physician. And he travels with the Apostle Paul on some of his missionary journeys. In my former book, Theophilus, Theophilus is probably the name of a person. It was common in those days to dedicate books to a person. But this person's name happens to be the lover of God, one who loves God. That's a great name to have. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen... Now, the book of Luke is going to tell us, tells us the story of the things that Jesus did and taught before he ascended to heaven. The book of Acts is now going to tell us what Jesus continued to do and teach after he went to heaven. Because his whole point was, though I'm going to be gone, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And so I'll be here, not in person, but through the Holy Spirit. And it is even greater... It is better that I am not here with you because the Holy Spirit will be with you. Then he went on. After his suffering, that's of course his crucifixion, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Remember, Christianity is primarily the story of things that happened here on this earth. It is not the same as other religions. It is not somebody saying, I heard from God, or I sensed that I became enlightened. Christianity is primarily about events that happened on this earth for which there was incredibly substantial evidence. Faith is not pie in the sky, by and by belief in the absurd. Faith is only as good as its object, and the object of our faith is first and foremost, the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and from there, the the crucifixion and what he did on the cross for us, and then all that that implies for the rest of our lives. The centrality of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so what did he do? Since this event was so important, Jesus spent 40 days on this earth giving many convincing proofs that he was alive, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. So that's what he talked about. Now, in, in, at the end of Luke, this is how Luke ends his gospel before the words I just read, which start the book of Acts. He told them, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. Now that's the end of Luke's gospel. What is his focus? His focus is the death and the resurrection of Jesus, which provides forgiveness to those who repent. What is that? Well, that's called the gospel. From the beginning to the end of Jesus' life, he focuses on the good news. And the last thing he wants to talk about, the thing that he wants his disciples to understand better than anything else is that he died on the cross for our sins and he was raised again from the dead. I'm sure you've heard the quote of Stephen Covey. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And I would submit to you that that's what we are losing here as Christians in America, maybe around the world. The main thing is for us to keep the main thing the main thing. And what's the main thing? Jesus told us what the main thing was. The main thing is the gospel. That's the main thing. Now, there are many ways that people have, have, have used to try to tell us in succinct form what is the gospel. This is one of them. It's called the Roman road. Maybe you've seen it. It starts at the beginning. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The good news actually begins with bad news. But then it gets worse because the Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. It oh, doesn't end there. But the gift of God, there's the gift. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then 5.8, for God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the gospel. In a nutshell, this one's called the Roman road. The apostle Paul gave us the gospel in its most succinct form in 1 Corinthians 15. Here it is. For I received what I passed on to you as of first importance. Here it is. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. That is the essence of Christianity. That is the good news. That is the gospel. Now, Timothy Keller, a well-known pastor in Manhattan, he said this, and we must remember, the gospel is good news. It is not good advice. Advice is what we should do. The Bible doesn't say this is what you should do. The essence of the gospel is, is news. This is what God has done for us. It turns religion absolutely on its head. We are not a religion that, that chose people about how to be good, or how to be better people. Someone has said, Christianity is not about making bad people good and good people better. It's about making dead people alive. It's totally different. It's not the same as other religions. It's in a totally different realm. It's primarily news. This is what God has done. Last week, I read an interview with another very well known entertainer. I shall leave his name out. He, he said in this interview that he was raised in a Christian home, and he said, Unapologetically, I call myself a Christian. And then he went on to say that a Christian meant being a good person. I wanted to go, Oh,
1: God, help us. <laughs>
0: You know what maybe the greatest irony in the history of the world is? Only bad people get to go to heaven. The one thing that will disqualify you from heaven is being a good person. That's the only disqualifier. Because the only way we get into heaven is realize that our only hope is that we can clothe ourselves in the righteousness of Jesus and if, in fact, you think that the essence of your life is being a good person, that will disqualify you. That is irony, ironing at its highest point. If you ask any person on the street in any city anywhere in the world that's ever existed, who goes to heaven, good or bad people? Everyone would say, well, good people. No! No, that's not true. No good people get to go to heaven because, remember our words of Jesus, there is no one who is good Yet God alone, or or the Apostle Paul writing in Romans, there's no one is good. There's no one who seeks God. None of us do. The entryway to the kingdom of heaven is the recognition that God must forgive our sins, and that He has and made the way to do that through Jesus. That's news, and that's what we proclaim. And so. The first thing that Jesus is going to say to his disciples is, be sure you keep the main thing, the main thing. It's the gospel. One of my favorite verses, I think that sums up the gospel, is this one in 2 Corinthians, written by Paul. God made Jesus, who had no sin, the only one of us, to be sin. He became our sin, and then our sin received the wrath of God and the punishment that our sin deserved and the death that our sin deserved, the wages of our sin. He got it so that now in him, what do we get to be? The righteousness of God. That's stunning. Now, the gospel message is pure and it is powerful. But the gospel messengers, that's us, aren't pure and we're not powerful. We're the opposite. So what's God going to do with that? He's got a pure and powerful message, but he's got very impure and impotent messengers. That's us. How's God going to make it work? Ah, he's got a plan. God's now going to communicate. Our Lord Jesus Christ will say, disciples, remember, you can You can't do it. Here's what he says. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And then at the end of of Luke... The previous gospel, his gospel. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. We have this expression, actually derived from guns, a little bit popular here in this state. We have the expression to go off half cocked. What does that mean? It means you lack. Adequate uh, preparation. You you go into action without actually thinking it through and being prepared for what you're going to face. And Jesus is basically saying to His disciples, don't go off half-cocked. My message is pure. And it is powerful. But you are not. You need power from on high. And so... What does the empowerment of the Holy Spirit look like? What? We, we talk about this all the time. Jesus says, you need a power you do not have resident inside of yourself to carry out this mission of mine, which is to bring this good news to the whole world. We, why we don't have it? Because basically we're timid people. We're afraid. And by the way, this message is incendiary. You get yourself killed for this message. Who wants to say something so you can get yourself killed? You need help. What help do we get from the Holy Spirit? I'm going to identify several things. The first one is conviction. What does conviction mean? Conviction means there's a deep connection with God's grace on a heart level. Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes... He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. When the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy, it is the Holy Spirit that gives us the sense that we have done wrong. Most of the time, we don't have a sense we've done wrong. We love to blame shift or find reasons outside of ourselves for the wrong we've done. But when the Holy Spirit deals with us, we say, no, I did it. It's me, and I was wrong. The Holy Spirit convinces us of sin, of righteousness. What we've done in our society is we've taken righteousness to such a low extent that anyone can get over it and convince ourselves we're good. But God does and Jesus constantly raises the bar of righteousness to unimaginable proportions because God's standard is perfection. God wants, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and righteousness, and the gap between God's righteousness that He requires and our sin is called judgment. The Holy Spirit is the one that gives us this, this sense of how deeply we need God's grace. That comes from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit also gives us boldness, the truth of most of us. Maybe very few exceptions is we're not naturally bold. I am not. I'm I'm timid. If there's something I know that might be slightly offensive or somebody does not want to hear, I don't want to say it. But what if the message you had was the message of life? God knows that his servants, his messengers, have this powerful message, but we are afraid to tell it. God says, I know that. I know what you're like. The Holy Spirit will give you Boldness, uncharacteristic boldness. Boldness that you don't have in and of yourself. And then another thing it speaks about is like with Stephen. It says Stephen was filled with wisdom from the Holy Spirit and the people when they questioned him and they hated him and they were throwing horrible verbal darts at him, they couldn't stand against the wisdom with which he spoke. It was wisdom that didn't come from him. It was uncommon wisdom. It came from another source. It came from the Holy Spirit and gifts for ministry. God says that He's gifted all of us. And I even noticed in our prayer this morning, focusing on the gifts that God has given to us of helps and mercy. These come from God. He wants us to, to use gifts He's given to us to help other people with the various needs in our lives. And the Holy Spirit gives us freedom and the fruit of our lives. That's what the Holy Spirit does. I would say one of the great joys of the Christian life is experiencing uncharacteristic, uncommon, unexpected, unusual, surprising empowerment to resemble and reflect and represent Jesus. That comes from the Holy Spirit. I, I would like to say I experience this, this all the time. I don't. But I can tell you I have experienced it. You realize, whoa, wonder where that thought came from. That was pretty good. <laughs> I don't think I figured that one out. Or you say something that you say, normally I would have held back. When there's things that are uncharacteristic, un- uncommon, but they're good and they're right. Where does that come from? Jesus said, you need my Holy Spirit. But then, they're getting a little big to their britches. Can you imagine? Here they're listening to Jesus speak, and he's talking to them. He's going, you guys are special. You have this powerful message that the world needs to hear. You now have the Holy Spirit to help you. They're going, bring it on. We're ready for the kingdom right now. Let's go for it." And Jesus said, "Uh, uh-uh, you're missing something. The kingdom's not coming right now, and the kingdom that's coming is not the one you expect. Here's how the Bible says it. So when they met to ask, met together, they asked Jesus, Lord, are you At this time, going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Now, this one question is full of problems. Here are the problems. First of all, the verb, then the noun, then the adverb. First of all, the verb. Are you going to restore? Restore what? Restore the kingdom of David. No. Then the noun, Israel. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? No. At this time, right now? No. Their question belied their hearts. They were still caught up in the idea that Jesus was going to restore or bring into being right away the millennial kingdom and they're going to be on his cabinet. And Jesus said, No! It's not for you to know the times and the dates that the Father has set by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be not the members of my cabinet, not my, the Minister of Justice, the Minister, the Secretary of State, no. You're not going to be that. You're going to be my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem? Yeah, it's going to start at home. But the goal is not Israel. The goal is Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I'm building a different kind of kingdom than what you have in mind. You see, Jesus has two kingdoms, or one kingdom really with one starts, has started now, and we've been in it for 2,000 years, and it's going to be completed one day when Jesus returns and then reigns for 1,000 years. But the kingdom that we're in now, we are part of God's kingdom right now, but there's a part of it that has not happened yet. It's still in the future. Some of what God told us is actually history. That's the kingdom we're in now, but there's part of it that's prophecy. It has not been fulfilled yet. In Jesus' first kingdom, he came as the suffering servant, but there's a kingdom coming in which he'll be the king of kings, the Lord of lords. When he came the first time as a king, he came as the suffering servant and atoned for our sin, But the day will come when He returns, and the curse of sin is going to be reversed. But that's not yet. The kingdom that we are part of now is a spiritual kingdom in which God is doing His work in the hearts of people. But one day there will be a political kingdom in which Jesus will rule from Jerusalem. The main way this kingdom is advanced today is through the proclamation of the gospel. One day there will be a kingdom that will be established over the whole earth and the ruler will be our Lord Jesus Christ. There will be righteousness for the first time on planet earth sitting in places of high power. You see, in the kingdom we're in now, Satan rules. I put that in quotes because he doesn't really. God rules. But he's the prince of the power of the air. Much of that which goes on in our world now today, the director of it is Satan. But the day will come And Satan will not be a factor at all. He will be bound. You see, we're living in the first part, but his disciples were thinking of the second part. Now, one of the great problems we're having in our society today among Christians is that we have not taken to heart Jesus' words about date setting and kingdom building. Church history is replete with Christians, even today. Especially when things get a little tense in the Middle East. There will be a flood of books on the market about the last times. We love to set dates. Jesus said, don't do it. Don't do it. You're going to get be wrong. You're going to be an idiot someday. Don't do it. Only the Father knows when the time of the end will come. We don't know when that is. We should be expectant, we should be looking up, but we don't know when it is. Don't set dates, and be careful that you don't build kingdoms. One of the the great sadnesses I've had as a pastor, and I can't speak too much about you because I, I don't know you that well, and I haven't seen a lot of this, but I saw a lot of it where I've pastored in the past people tend to become far, far, far emotional, more emotional about the political party they support than the Lord Jesus Christ. That's really common among Christians. They're far more emotional, far more impassioned about politics than about Jesus. And I want to say, what what kingdom are you looking for? This is not... It's not the millennium yet. The ruler is not here right now. He he is by the Holy Spirit, but he's at the right hand of the Father. Don't set dates. Build his kingdom, not political kingdoms. Those will all fall, all of them. Well, just before he left, he said, I'll be back. Here's how it ends. This is the last words of Luke. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. So his last thing is he blessed his disciples. I would have loved to heard that blessing. I'd like to have been there, to think Jesus blessed you. And while he was blessing them, he, he left them and was taken up into heaven. I, I, I can't imagine, I guess he just flew. You know, can you imagine just going What did they do? They worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. And this is how he writes, Luke wrote it in the book of Acts. After he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. He's coming back. Where? Same place, the Mount of Olives. So I conclude with just a few ideas about what's he doing in the meantime. What's he doing now? Well, the first thing he's doing is he's uh, sitting He's standing. You see, the Bible tells us that He's sitting, and the sitting at the right hand of the Father. That's that's the place of greatest honor in the whole cosmos. But the Bible, here's here's what it says. It says, um, "...the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word, After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. My work's done. I'm going to watch. But then it says, um, this is Revelation 5. Then I saw a lamb looking as if he had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. He's at the place of honor. Resting because his work of salvation has been completing. But he's standing because all authority belongs to him. And what's he doing as he sits and stands? He's indwelling believers through the Holy Spirit. He's still here. He's with us. And so when we we look into the eyes of people, we're looking into the eyes that Jesus had of people who he loves because he's indwelling us who are believers. What else is he doing? He's praying. Can can you imagine? Jesus, oh, Father, you better send some angels to help that rotten driver. uh, I love that guy, but he doesn't know what he's doing behind that wheel. You you might have to protect him in ways he doesn't know anything about. I wonder how many times God has done things we have no concept of at all to, to spare us or to help us through difficult times. We don't even know about it. Because Jesus is interceding for us. And he's advocating as the great high priest. He's... Because the Bible seems to indicate Satan has some access to the throne of God, allowed by God. And what does Jesus do? He's our lawyer. He's not our, our, only our lawyer. He's been the sacrifice, and he's advocating for us. Oh, this one, look at the stunt this one of your children just pulled. Jesus steps forward and says, oh. Oh, yeah, I know about that one. I paid for that one in full. They're perfect in my eyes, in the eyes of God. He's advocating for us. That's really nice. The Bible says, Jesus told us in John 14, he's preparing a place for us. I don't know what that's going to look like, but it's got to be pretty good. He's building his church. The gates of hell, can't withstand it, even though it looks opposite to that sometimes. And here's, But it says in Revelation, look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. And John ends his his revelation with these words. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Jesus.
1: Thank you that you told us that for you a thousand years is like a day because soon, 2,000 years doesn't seem like soon to us. But from the perspective of eternity, it's a blink of an eye. Thank you, Jesus, for, for having loved us so much, for coming to this earth. It's a pretty lousy place, especially the way we treated you. Thank you for paying the ultimate price and doing for us things we could never do for ourselves. Thank you for having come to us because we can't come to you. Thank you for having done for us what we never would have done. Thank you for seeking us out when we really don't seek you out much at all. Thank you for having walked out of the grave. It would have been nice to watch you lift up into heaven. But we're even more grateful that you're at the right hand of the Father, holding the whole world in your hands. And now, Heavenly Father, as we leave this place, it is our prayer that the gospel would be central in our hearts, and our worship of you would be pure, and our lives would have reflect your glory, your Holy Spirit would help us to do things that are way beyond ourselves. And then in all things, you would be glorified. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.